Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. This episode features discussions of torture and death that some may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. Over the course of his life, Idi Amin, the butcher of Uganda, was married at least six times, kept dozens of mistresses, and fathered upwards of 54 children. In the late 1960s and the early 1970s, Amin was married to four of these women at the same time. Then, in 1974, Amin abruptly divorced three of the four. While this was perfectly legal under Ugandan and Islamic law, the sudden announcement didn't sit well with the newly single mothers of Amin's many children. The wives, who had for some time grown distant from their husband, only hardened in their disdain. When forced to confront the rejection, Amin became enraged. He had one wife arrested and, upon her release from jail, staged a car accident in an attempt to kill her. Luckily, she survived. Wife number two, Kay Adroa, wasn't so lucky. Adroa was also arrested and quickly released. But unlike wife number one, Adroa disappeared. Days later, her dismembered body was brought into a local hospital. Amin actually ordered a doctor to reattach her severed limbs to her torso so her children and her father could see their loved one. The next morning, Kay's father and children went to the hospital where she was laid on a bed, covered by a sheet. As they stood over their mother's dead body, Amin approached. But instead of paying his respects or consoling his children, he screamed at them. Your mother was a bad woman. See what has happened to her? Over the course of his reign, Amin became known for his erratic and unpredictable behavior. The suspicious death of Kay Adroa proved that even his own family wasn't safe. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. This season, we're looking at three African leaders, Idi Amin in Uganda, 
Francisco Macias Inguema in Equatorial Guinea, and Jean Bedel Bocasa in the Central African Republic. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. This week, we'll focus on what led the international community to turn against Idi Amin, how becoming a pariah exacerbated his murderous quest to maintain power, and how that power was seized from him once and for all. By the mid-1970s, after nearly half a decade of Idi Amin's leadership, Uganda was in shambles. The economy had imploded. Murders, torture, and kidnapping were ubiquitous, and Amin had alienated virtually every Western country. But he still had the support of the Soviet Union and Libya, and most importantly, he was rich and he was powerful, which was likely all he ever wanted. Amin's cartoonish behavior had made him internationally infamous, perhaps even the most famous man in Africa. And even as the situation in his country deteriorated, he maintained a symbiotic relationship with the press. After his anti-Semitic tirades and efforts at ethnic cleansing, the international community no longer viewed him as an amusing eccentric. Instead, he was written off as a kook, someone whose provocative, inflammatory behavior displayed little long-term vision. But much like a train wreck, the press simply couldn't look away. Amin understood this better than anyone. He eagerly played into this new reputation. In his view, all press was good press. And in 1975, he chose his favorite target, the British, for his next international incident. Perhaps Amin felt betrayed by the British. He dedicated much of his young life to the British army in Uganda, quelling uprisings within its other African colonies like in Kenya. Amin couldn't understand why a country he'd dutifully served for years would turn its back on him. Of course, the British themselves had never rounded up their perceived enemies and murdered them. This they often made the job of their hired Ugandan military members. And they had continued to exploit Uganda and its people. Amin was simply more ruthless about it. While he couldn't understand their hypocrisy, there was one thing Amin did understand. Revenge. The British press had mercilessly lampooned him, characterizing him as a clown and a buffoon. Much of this stemmed from an innately racist worldview. Amin's behavior reinforced their belief that Africans were too primitive to govern themselves. And when plotting his revenge, Amin took all of this into consideration. He was going to have the last laugh, and he would use the British press to do it. Since 1963, British author Dennis Hills had been living in Uganda and teaching at McCarrory College. He was planning to publish a book entitled The White Pumpkin, an outsider's glimpse into daily Ugandan life. When Amin's secret police raided Hill's apartment and came across the manuscript, they focused on one particular statement declaring that Amin governed like a village tyrant, by fear. He had Hills arrested, charged him with treason, and quickly condemned him to die by firing squad. 
Amin held several press conferences in which he blustered and raged against Hills and Britain in general. Only this time, the British press and politicians weren't laughing. They'd seen images of the public executions carried out in Uganda and had little doubt that Amin would follow through on his threats. Now Amin had the British right where he wanted them. Eyes from all over the world were watching. It was his turn to humiliate them on an international stage. Not wasting any time, Queen Elizabeth sent Amin a personal letter begging for leniency. Amin completely ignored her. Fearing the worst, the Queen then sent Foreign Secretary James Callaghan to Uganda to personally plead for Hills' release. Callahan had no idea if he was walking into a trap, no idea whether he'd make it back to England alive, let alone secure Hills' release. With the help from Zairean leader Mobutu Sese Seko, Callahan met with Amin behind closed doors. And when they emerged from Amin's office, Dennis Hill's release had been secured. The negotiation was a success. It's unclear whether the British government paid Amin for Hills's release or if Amin simply wanted a public apology. Either way, he received one and more. Amin called a press conference where Callahan and Hills both delivered sincere yet good-natured apologies and shook Amin's hand. The British government also agreed to review its foreign aid to Uganda. It was a complete, unequivocal victory for Amin. Now, he was even. If Amin couldn't effectively govern a country or improve the standard of living for his people, he could still masterfully troll the British. And while earning a fawning apology from the British government may have been Amin's most significant international achievement yet, he wouldn't be satisfied until he was the most famous, powerful man on Earth. Amin wanted to ride this momentum as far as it would take him. Unfortunately, that momentum would soon grind to a swift and disastrous halt. On June 27, 1976, an Air France flight from Tel Aviv to Paris with more than 240 passengers and 12 crew members was hijacked by two Palestinian and two German terrorists. Shortly after takeoff from a scheduled stop in Athens, Greece, the flight was diverted to Benghazi, Libya, where one passenger was let off the plane after faking a miscarriage. After refueling, the plane flew to Entebbe Airport in Uganda. Amin had agreed to harbor the terrorists since he supported their cause, the liberation of Palestinian political prisoners. His support of Palestine was possibly only out of revenge for a perceived betrayal by the Israeli government years before when they refused to sell him fighter jets. When the opportunity to antagonize Israel presented itself, Amin jumped at the chance. Once the hostages landed at Entebbe Airport and were moved to an empty terminal that was no longer in use, they were kept and guarded by Ugandan soldiers. Amin visited on a regular basis, taking it upon himself to update the hostages on the nuances of the negotiations. On June 28th, a full day after the hijacking, one of the Palestinian terrorists finally made a formal declaration of demands, including a $5 million ransom and the release of 53 Palestinian militant prisoners, most of whom were in Israel. 
If the demands weren't met, he threatened to begin killing hostages on July 1st, only three days away. The following day, the terrorists separated the 246 hostages into two groups. Group 1 consisted of Israelis and Orthodox Jews. Group 2 was everyone else. On June 30th, the terrorists released 48 hostages from Group 2, including mothers, children, elderly, and the sick, and sent them back to Paris. Around this time, they also sent one 74-year-old Israeli passenger to the hospital in Kampala after choking on a chicken bone. But the rest of the hostages were staying in place. On July 1st, the terrorist deadline, Israel finally agreed to negotiate. As a result, the terrorists extended their deadline to July 4th and released the remaining 100 hostages from Group 2. As with the previous group, they were flown back to Paris. Some reports have suggested that several of the Group 2 hostages, including the flight crew, refused to leave the remaining hostages behind. A total of 106 remained in Uganda. In the previous days, Israel, the United States, and Egypt made several efforts to free the hostages. These efforts continued briefly. Unfortunately, Amin and the terrorists refused to budge. Frustrated, the Israeli government knew they'd have to rescue the hostages themselves. As luck would have it, an Israeli construction company had actually built the terminal of the Entebbe airport where the hostages were being held. Using the company's blueprints and information from released hostages, Israeli forces devised a plan to send in commandos. They called the mission Operation Thunderbolt. The plan would involve a ground task force of about 100 soldiers, medics, and pilots. It was led by Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Netanyahu, brother of the future Israeli Prime Minister. At the time, Amin was out of the country, so Israelis disguised the convoy to resemble Amin's own and create the illusion that he was visiting the hostages. The planes touched down at Entebbe as midnight approached on July 3rd. Neither the terrorists nor the Ugandan soldiers inside had any idea what lay in store. The Israelis drove toward the terminal in a black Mercedes limousine and several Land Rovers, just as Amin would have. What they didn't know was that Amin had just swapped out his black Mercedes for a white one. Their cover was already blown. When they reached the first security checkpoint, a suspicious guard ordered the vehicles to stop. He was shot and killed by an Israeli soldier. The Israelis stormed the terminal on foot. Having studied the blueprints, they knew the most effective entry points. But as the commandos ran toward the airport, Jonathan Netanyahu was shot and killed by a sniper in the airport control tower. The sniper radioed for backup, but since Amin had put very little thought or planning into the hostage situation, certainly not enough to anticipate a raid by Israeli commandos, backup didn't arrive for almost an hour. Within moments, the commandos made it into the terminal unscathed. As they entered, they began shouting in Hebrew to reassure the hostages they were safe. After taking nearly a week to meticulously plan every detail of the raid, it took mere minutes for the Israeli commandos to kill all of the terrorists. In less than an hour, the Israelis were loading the hostages into their cargo planes. But by then, Ugandan backup had arrived. 
a firefight broke out. During the course of the rescue, three hostages were killed and 10 were wounded. However, the Israelis managed to kill between 33 and 45 Ugandan soldiers. Once the 102 surviving hostages and 99 surviving Israeli soldiers were loaded into the cargo planes, they took off for Nairobi, Kenya. From there, they made their way to Israel. Idi Amin had tried to flex his power on an international stage and failed spectacularly. Not only that, he was defeated by Israelis. Jews, the very people he'd so publicly condemned, scorned, and belittled. For Amin, who prized his image as a powerful man above almost all else, the defeat was insurmountable. Whatever power he'd earned before had been stripped along with his dignity. Once again, he would turn inward and project his fury onto people he knew he could defeat his own. When we return, Idi Amin's behavior shifts from controlled chaos to all-out pandemonium. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. Idi Amin may have been able to achieve small victories using the media, but he completely overestimated his own power and that of his military. Amin hadn't been present during the 1976 raid on Entebbe Airport, but after he heard of the disgraceful defeat, he was understandably furious. There was little that 51-year-old Amin could do to retaliate against Israel. Operation Thunderbolt had proven that he and his country were completely outmatched. Instead, Amin chose a more suitable target, 74-year-old Dora Block the hostage who had been released to a hospital in Kampala after choking on a chicken bone. Amin sent soldiers to the hospital where she was recovering and had her killed. Her body was discovered almost three years later in a sugar plantation 20 miles outside of Kampala. But Amin didn't limit his revenge to hospital-bound Israeli septuagenarians. As revenge for Kenya allowing the Israeli soldiers to refuel at their airport, Amin rounded up and murdered hundreds of Kenyans living in Uganda. But for Amin, these revenge killings were too little, too late. The damage to his reputation had been done. The great irony of Operation Thunderbolt is that until four years before the event, Amin and Israel had had a fairly good relationship. After Uganda gained independence in 1962, Israel provided arms and financial assistance to the new country, 
and they'd even helped Amin train troops that took part in the coup that put him in power. By 1972, Israel began rejecting many of Amin's requests. One such request was for fighter jets. It's plausible that if he hadn't been so hell-bent on revenge for that minor perceived slight, none of this would ever have happened. But as it were, Operation Thunderbolt sealed Amin's fate as an international pariah. From this point forward, no Western government would have anything to do with him. Even the international media, which had been content to air his bizarre press conferences, began to lose interest. Amin had put Uganda on the map, but his critical stories began to accumulate and the country devolved even further into chaos. He feared that Ugandans would finally turn against him en masse. Amin's power had already been challenged more than once. Throughout his tenure, he'd avoided numerous assassination attempts. According to some accounts, in 1974, he'd actually killed a would-be assassin with the gun he always carried on his side. A year later, he escaped another attempt on his life while switching cars in a convoy. And in 1976, he narrowly avoided being hit by three exploding grenades at a military graduation. All this is to say that Amin had reason to fear being deposed. But instead of trying to rebuild his image by fixing even one single thing in Uganda, Amin took a page directly out of the dictator's playbook, distraction. Amin convinced the Ugandan public that the country's problems weren't his fault. Instead, he blamed a series of scapegoats. Among them were the British, Americans, and the British Indian citizens he'd expelled years before. And of course, the Jews. This tactic worked well in North Korea, where a massive propaganda machine was able to create a foreign threat that didn't actually exist. It worked incredibly well for Hitler, too. But in this case, it's unlikely that anyone actually believed Amin. His reputation was already in shambles, and despite killing numerous individual journalists, he was never able to fully censor the critical press. However, he still commanded enough loyalty where it mattered, among the military and the secret police. For now, he was safe. Although he may have been safe, he was utterly desperate for attention. By this point, people began treating Amin like a bratty child, hoping that if they ignored him, he would simply go away. And just like a bratty child, Amin couldn't stand being ignored. If killing hundreds of thousands of his own people wasn't going to cut it, he needed another approach. So he kicked his military persona up a notch, or in this case, several notches. Amin was already known for wearing an extravagant uniform with an impressive display of medals. But in late 1976, Amin began bestowing increasingly bizarre titles upon himself. The first relatively benign one was Big Daddy. Given early on in his rule, this was not only a cool nickname, but would also prove to be totally accurate. Amin was very big, and he was also a daddy, nearly 40 times over. But brevity wasn't in Amin's repertoire, certainly not when it came to his nicknames. Eventually, he began calling himself 
conqueror of the British Empire in Africa. This wasn't completely false. It just didn't make sense given that Britain had several other colonies in Africa besides Uganda. But truth and common sense weren't important. What was inexplicably important to him was Scotland. Amin was fascinated by Scottish culture, particularly kilts and bagpipes. As an accordion player himself, it's only natural that Amin would be taken with another instrument that many claim produces a shrill, ear-splitting sound. Amin graciously offered to become Scotland's king and free them from British oppression. Despite their polite refusal, Amin still dubbed himself the last king of Scotland. But these nicknames pale in comparison to his final title. His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal Al-Hajj, Dr. Idi Amin Dada, VC, DSO, MC, CBE, Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the seas, and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general, and Uganda in particular. When he wasn't giving himself titles, Amin found the time to give himself something just as bizarre, a law degree from Makerere University. Despite never attending law school or even receiving an education past the fourth grade level. He also awarded himself a Victorious Cross, a medal he invented to emulate the Victoria Cross, the most prestigious honor in Britain. His most recent antics were outrageous enough to grab Amin the headlines he craved, but only briefly. By late 1976, Amin had actually morphed into the caricature he once portrayed to confuse and ingratiate himself to Western powers. What had seemed comical and ludicrous at that point had shifted into actions both sick and demented. His obsession with death and destruction began bleeding into his personal life, and now his entire existence was a study of the macabre. Before the fiasco at Entebbe, Amin had been a genial, fun-loving host, albeit one who forced his guests to sit through interminable accordion solos. Now his dinner parties resembled the feasts at Caligula's palace. Often drunk and belligerent, dinner parties at Amin's sometimes featured an appearance from one of the many severed heads he kept in a freezer. Amin would talk to his guests using the frozen severed heads of his enemies like a deranged ventriloquist. It's also rumored that he ate their organs, although this has never been confirmed. Clearly, Amin was losing his grip on reality. He was also losing his grip on Uganda. Whatever support he still had was tenuous at best. Uganda wasn't a hermit kingdom like North Korea, where there was literally no connection to the outside world. Ugandans knew they lived in the shadow of countries like Kenya and Tanzania, which both had relatively robust economies. By almost any metric, life during the colonial period had actually been better for the majority of Ugandans. Amin's situation became even bleaker in 1977, when several high-level political advisors fled Uganda altogether. All the agencies he had created to maintain his hold on power had grown so powerful themselves that they no longer felt any sense of loyalty to him. 
All he had left were the secret police and the military. And they were in trouble too. With the country on the verge of bankruptcy, military funding was dripping to a halt. Meanwhile, next door in Tanzania, the exiled Ugandan leader Milton Obote was closely monitoring these developments. So there were thousands of other Ugandans that Amin had exiled. The Tanzanian government had granted asylum to Obote and didn't formally recognize Amin as his successor. As a result, thousands of Tanzanian troops were dispatched to join Obote in planning a coup to overthrow Amin. Abote had the numbers, and with Kenyan support, he also had the guns. All he needed now was to find the right time to strike. When we return, Idi Amin's hubris catches up to him. Now back to the story. By 1978, 53-year-old Idi Amin knew he was losing his grip on Uganda. Many of his top officials had fled the country. What remained of the government was broken and bankrupt. And soon, he heard rumors that Uganda's former leader, Milton Obote, was planning a coup from his safe haven in Tanzania. But Amin wouldn't go down without a fight, literally. With the walls closing in, Amin needed a desperate gambit to maintain his power. And he knew a military operation was just that gambit. After all, if his soldiers were engaged and fighting, they couldn't join the coup and help depose him. So, with encouragement from some of his top military aides, Amin decided to preemptively invade Tanzania and put a stop to the nascent uprising. Amin could no longer pay his troops, but it didn't matter. Beginning in October 1978, they carried out the operation with the same brutality and sadism that Amin had exercised as a soldier during the Mau Mau Rebellion. Amin's troops blazed a path of death and destruction through the border region with Tanzania, brutalizing enemy soldiers into submission. Their charge was so effective that it actually surprised Amin, whose expectations were most certainly dashed by their performance during the raid on Entebbe. Days later, Amin declared victory. It was an audacious move, a last gasp, and somehow it seemed to have paid off. By starting a war as a distraction, Amin had employed a well-known tactic used by other dictators. But just like Kim Il-sung had done when he invaded South Korea, Amin failed to plan for a second phase of battle. And just like Kim Il-sung, he would immediately come to regret it. In those first days of the attack, Amin had only defeated a small portion of the Tanzanian army. And he'd only done so because he had the element of surprise. When reinforcements arrived, the Tanzanians quickly pushed back the Ugandans. After less than a month, by late November, they retook every inch of territory that had been seized. Exhausted and significantly outgunned and outnumbered, The vast majority of Amin's troops either surrendered or defected. Over the coming months, as the enemy marched closer and closer to the Ugandan capital of Kampala, Amin knew it was over. There was nothing else he could do to distract people or shift the blame for his mistakes. He was finished. So he barricaded himself inside his palace in Kampala. 
On April 10, 1979, Tanzanian troops and Ugandan rebels entered the capital. The next day, Amin fled the country in an army helicopter. As Amin fled to the safety of Libya, Milton Obote, the man he deposed, returned to Uganda to reclaim power. Tanzanian soldiers and Ugandan citizens alike celebrated in the streets. Idi Amin's reign of terror was over. Amin's time in Libya was short-lived. The following year, he was granted asylum by the Saudi royal family. Not only did they offer him a generous salary for doing nothing, they put him up in a well-appointed and tasteful home where he stayed for the rest of his life. During his retirement in Saudi Arabia, Amin gave interviews and tried to organize the occasional comeback in Uganda, though he could never pull together enough support. Through it all, he never once expressed remorse for his behavior or actions. He also married two additional women. Finally, on August 16, 2003, Amin died of multiple organ failure at the approximate age of 78. He was survived by several wives and more than 30 children. Amin was never brought to justice for his crimes since Saudi Arabia didn't honor most international extradition agreements. But there was plenty he could have been convicted of. He embezzled millions of dollars from a poor and broken country. He created a secret police force to control his citizens. But most shockingly of all, according to estimates from Amnesty International, he killed nearly half a million people. Amin may have believed these people were a threat to his power. He may have also been a murderous sociopath who simply killed them for fun. Looking at the evidence, it's likely he was both. For years, Western countries characterized Amin as an imbecile, a buffoon, the personification of the primitive African. But while Amin may have been outrageous, uneducated, and possibly illiterate, he was far from stupid. Amin grew up devastatingly poor, in a country with little to no opportunity for success, advancement, or wealth. All he wanted was an opportunity to improve his circumstances. And when he got it, he was single-mindedly focused on leaving his old life behind. Amin had no real ideology except for his own advancement, wealth, and power. He didn't care about his Muslim faith, his wives, his children, or his fellow citizens. Every decision he made was for his own benefit. And as his power increased, those selfish decisions grew to affect an entire country. People may have rejoiced in the streets after Amin was deposed, but Uganda has yet to recover from his reign of terror, graft, and incompetence. Yoweri Museveni, a modern-day strongman, has led the country since 1986. And while Ugandans may no longer fear kidnapping and murder at the hands of their government, unemployment, poverty, and corruption are still rampant. Amin was among the first group of modern African dictators and helped establish a political system that is still present in regions across the continent. Instead of colonial powers pillaging the continent, it's Africans themselves who perpetrate the system of oppression. Even today, when we hear about a ruler in Africa, there is a decent chance that the leader will be compared to Idi Amin. 
the man who set the bar for murder and corruption. But if Idi Amin hadn't seized power in Uganda, some other demagogue would have potentially taken his place. He would have had to, to fill the power vacuum left by the colonial powers that abandoned the continent. This same scenario played out all across Africa in the same years while Idi Amin was ruling Uganda. And next week, we'll look at one of his contemporaries, Francisco Macias Nguema, who unleashed his own reign of terror on the people of Equatorial Guinea. Thanks for listening to Dictators. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>